sponsors Missing both the shoes with some rotten teeth sponsors Bloody stained glass like busted and Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Uh, finally, it looks like spring has arrived in Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Before we move on to the intense content of our program today, I want to take a second to thank some of our local business partners. Thanks to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Also, they've got a catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been working on creatures large and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street between Locust and, and uh, Grand Avenue in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. And finally, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, located on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with excellent and friendly service at Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. All right, so hey, welcome to the program, folks. Uh, Later in the show, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Maureen McHugh with Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility about the uh, the escalating movement to abolish nuclear weapons. Uh, this is a conversation that has been somewhat uh, on the back burner for a while, and we're kind of wondering why, because things are in dangerous, uh, it's a dangerous situation, and with some of the actions of our president and some other global leaders, we've seen the uh, problem escalate from, you know, uh, a concern to a great concern. We'll talk about that with Maureen in the second half of the program. Uh, we're waiting for the mayor, uh, Frank County, of Des Moines, to arrive here. While we, while we await his arrival, I want to uh, brief you on a couple things. Uh, brief you on a couple things that you probably already know about. The, um, the flooding in many parts of the upper Midwest is historic. It's being referred to as historic, uh, unprecedented, shattering records, the, uh, and, and again, it focuses on Missouri, Iowa, South Dakota, other cities, but uh, worst of all is Nebraska. And, of course, western Iowa, connected to Nebraska, is uh, taking some of the hit as well. The, um, the unprecedented flooding that already has shattered records is uh, slated to only get, to get worse. Um, and, uh, you know, the folks are going to say, well, this is just a, uh, we've, we've seen this before. We've seen flooding. We see flooding all the time. This is just a cyclical sort of thing. And I wish that were the case. But all the indicators are that it, it is because of the, um, the shifts in our climate that we have these kind of uh, weather events converging in such a way to cause this kind of historic and unprecedented flooding. With me here is uh, Mayor Frank County, who I guess is probably happy that Des Moines seems to have dodged the bullet. And, uh, oh, I mean, gosh, the water is hot. You can't even see the dam on the Des Moines River downtown, which is an indicator that you've got some serious flooding going on. But in terms of what's happened out west, uh, western Iowa, Nebraska, other places, uh, it could be a lot worse here. Boy, it sure could. Um, But, you know, we saw that uh, amount of... white stuff that we haven't seen for a while uh, that piled up up in the watershed that uh, all over the Midwest and uh, certainly has uh, affected even the Missouri River worse than Mississippi at the moment. Yeah, but, at the moment. Uh, yeah. As we look at, uh, at Iowa and the Raccoon Watershed and the Des Moines Watershed, uh, we're, we're keeping a really close eye on uh, what's going on. And then uh, if we see... Not only the melting of the snow, but the uh, um, still some frost in the in the ground. So when it does melt and when we're seeing rain, it's going straight in the rivers as opposed to being absorbed. So uh, to your points, you know we're we're seeing um, in certain parts of Iowa, you know, pretty sizable uh, increases in precipitation, and the circumstances uh, certainly are are. Uh, threatening. So how how is it that people still believe that uh, that the um, that the uh, the the type of weather we're seeing is not connected to anthropogenic uh, global warming? How 
it, it just it seems hard for people to make that connection that uh, these events are not are not they may be the new normal but they're not normal in terms of what uh, we would expect on this planet if it weren't for human activity how come that's so hard to get across well i i think uh, for some people it's it's the it's a science itself i mean they they don't want to um or haven't taken the time to look at it to listen to it to uh um try to get their minds and their their uh arms around it and uh, quite frankly to adjust their <clears throat> their activities to uh, uh hopefully positively uh, uh impact the what we hope to be the the work that has to be done uh to to limit um the impact of of climate change and uh i um certainly uh, it it can be scientifically tracked the increases in carbon in the air and the um um the greenhouse gases that uh that that holds and what that does to the climate uh, globally and uh, you know we're seeing certain areas that are getting huge amounts of of water and even in Iowa we're seeing a southern part of Iowa that almost is in a drought situation yeah and so it's uh, um we're we're seeing phenomena across this country in the United States that uh, has been uh, so impacted by uh, the the consequences uh, of behavior that has happened over the last century. I'd say the other uh, unprecedented climate story in this this past week is the response of young people across the country, across the world. In fact, a hundred countries saw students walk out, uh, strike from school to protest inaction on climate change. Uh, now, there are some saying, and maybe I, I don't want to assume anything, Frank. There are some saying, well, those kids need to be in school. Some people who are saying that even are with us on the climate conversation, but they still feel the kids shouldn't be skipping school. What, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, to your point of how do we get people to understand the importance of this, and I will tell you that young people, um, in in my um, experience, pick it up really quickly. They don't have other things that are, you know, their job, their whatever. They see the the impacts of actions, inactions in the climate world, as you and I know it. Uh, they, they understand the science very quickly. And uh, quite frankly, I, I'm proud of them uh, for standing up and understanding it so quickly and realizing that something has to be done in our lifetimes. You know, when you and I started talking about this 15, 20 years ago, it was, you know, well, you know, 2100, uh, you know, we'll have to make some adjustments. And then all of a sudden there was a recalc and it was 2050. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the latest release looks like it's 2030. 2030, yeah. And again, I'm not surprised that we've had to do that recalculation because science tends to be conservative. And if anything, science has erred on the side of not not forecasting the most significant impacts of the changing climate that we're actually beginning to see now, uh, far in advance of when they were predicted. And I think the reality is that they're going to be more severe than what has been predicted. And well, I, uh, and, and, and I agree with you. I think that, that the science has, has been clear and has been out there. And some, uh, clear some but people. Cautious, but, well, right? some people, well, t- for some people. Um, you know, um, I and you uh, also, I know, have, uh, um, have watched Dr. James Hansen and his predictions from. Uh, over the last 10 years. Well, the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, yeah, have been pretty dire. Yeah. And uh, so his his interpretation of the science, he's he. I, I don't want to say he's taken the worst case scenario, but he's taken the very uh, serious look at the science and said, the probability of this happening in this time frame is very significant. And where other scientists, to your point, they'll look at it and they'll look at the most conservative outcome and say, well, you know, 
we have to keep an eye on it because something might happen. And what's what's one or two degrees? Yeah. What does that mean? And uh, Dr. Hansen would look at those one or two degrees, and he would start telling us exactly yeah. what the ability uh, is and, and what the absorption of of um, of the heat in the atmosphere and how it holds humidity. And that's another huge piece. Folks are talking with Des Moines Mayor Frank County on the uh, Fallon Forum this morning. We're discussing the uh, recent historic unprecedented flooding in the upper Midwest, also the uh, the uh, school strike for climate. And I want to talk a little bit about the uh, role of climate in the presidential campaign. We've got to take a short break. Uh, your calls are also welcome on this program. Your opinions are as valid as ours. Maybe even better. Give us a shout at 515-528-8122. That's 515-528-8122. That's the number to call to be on the Fallon Forum. We'll take a short break and be back in just a couple minutes. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns. Someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515 515- It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant... Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. That's uh, Brother Trucker. We're back to our conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Again, later in the program, 
Dr. Maureen McHugh with Physicians for Social Responsibility joining us to talk about efforts to push for the abolition of nuclear weapons and about some work being done in the upper Midwest uh, in the next month or so. But in the meantime, we're going back to our conversation here with Frank County. We're talking about climate change, the historic floods. We're talking about the uh, the the um, climate strike that happened recently all over the world. And I, I want to I take a caller here. Folks, if you'd like to call to be on the show, it's 515-528-8122. Before we take our first caller, Frank, um, the role of climate in the presidential campaign, what's your take on what you've seen so far? Well, I'd love to see the, the conversation pick up amongst all other candidates, uh, regardless of party, uh, Republicans, Democrats. I think this is an issue that uh, is going to affect not only our lives, but our kids and our grandkids, our great-grandkids. And uh, the one that I've heard that has spoken the loudest, at least that I've heard, is Jay Inslee. Uh, Former governor, well, current governor of Washington State. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he has uh, made this his top priority. Um, he believes that it's something that we need to address. I served on the White House task force with him. Mm. He's very outspoken. He's tried to do a lot of things up in Washington. And uh, I think he can he, he would be an individual that uh, on climate issues. Um, do you think would, his presence in the race will push other candidates to make it a, t- a top priority? I sure hope so. Uh, because uh, he speaks speaks very knowledgeably about it, and I hope that everybody else is listening. I know we've got some very uh, intelligent people wanting to be the next leader of this country, uh, but I got to tell you, the issue that uh, to me needs to be addressed. And, and again, to clarify, it. it's not an issue. Yeah, it's a crisis. Oh boy. Yeah, a major crisis. Uh, let's go to our phone lines and welcome uh, Jeff to the conversation. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Good. How are you, Ed? Good. So, hey, what do you? What? What are your? What's on your mind? Well, I have a question for uh, Mayor County. Uh, first, I would like to applaud Des Moines for its work in the past on trying to work on flood control in the city itself. But regarding the school strike, um, I uh, I'm a Quaker, and uh, one of the, our uh, institutions is a boarding school out in the country in Western Iowa, Scattergood Friends School. And the reason I mention that is because. A lot of the education there happens outside the classroom. The students do all the work, like laundry and cooking the food and working on the farm. And so along those lines, I think it's it's good that students do things outside the classroom, like the school strikes, where they actually are getting an education. I, uh, pur- I purposely went there myself Friday to talk to the students there about uh, the Green New Deal. Oh, very good. There's a lot of interest there. And I think it's really important that we start working on that right away. And I'd be really interested in hearing what the mayor had to say about uh, how Des Moines uh, might be working with the Green New Deal. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, thanks for your your comment and your question. Uh, You know, I think as we think about the future and we think about the economy, we think about what needs to be done. Ed and I have had this discussion here not only this morning but many times in the past. Um, the Green New Deal uh, is a lot about jobs, and I believe that while some people would uh, push that the economy is running along and we need to focus on uh, the jobs in the economy of the past, I believe there's huge opportunity for growth and education in um, in green jobs. And I think that we have to train our young people to be prepared for it. Um, and I think that um, the city of Des Moines, in trying to work with uh, Des Moines Public Schools, matter of fact, I went uh, uh, with uh, one of the past superintendents, uh, to a greening of America schools, and we talked about what could be done. And uh, um, matter of fact, I I felt like maybe we ought to uh, think even about in Des Moines public schools a little different from uh, where you are, uh, that they ought to have greenhouses on the junior highs and the high schools, and the young people should uh, learn about raising fresh. Uh, uh, fruits and vegetables, and then serve them in the in the lunchrooms. And uh, that'd it be would, great. It'd be much healthier than some of the things there, that they there eat today. There, of course, today. will be pushback against that. Oh, of course, there will be. Yeah, uh, but it's it's about education, 
It's about them, uh, as we talked about in climate change, taking those skills home and, and say, asking their mom and dad, why don't we have a garden in our backyard? Right, right. Why aren't we raising our own food? We're doing it at school. Uh, this is why we do it. And uh, I will tell you, the young people, they pick up these ideas really quickly. And uh, they seem to be the ones that uh, are going to be able to take the green jobs, uh, the opportunity to have them, uh, healthy foods uh, moving forward. Thank, I, thanks again for your call, Jeff. And folks, if you'd like to be a part of the conversation here, it's 515-528-8122. That's 528-8122. Okay, so Frank, uh, piggybacking on what Jeff uh, said regarding the student climate strike, uh, right now we have basically a symbolic message. Uh, and again, when, when Greta Thunberg, the uh, Swedish uh, 16-year-old who uh, dropped, well, she basically struck from school for three whole weeks to sit in front of the Swedish parliament, and now she's doing that every Friday and has been doing that for months. And that's that was the the focus this <coughs> week was for, for kids to get out of school on Friday and to basically to strike from school on Friday. But is it really a strike when you just take part of a day off at the end of the week? And how far do we want to – I mean, it's really it's, – it's not really our job to encourage students to do this. They're going to do what they want to do uh, because they get the urgency of it, like you said. But is it more – would it be more effective, more powerful, have a more immediate impact if students actually struck from school completely? Now, I, I'm running the risk of, um, of uh, being accused of being – uh, as bad an influence on Des Moines' youth as Socrates was on the youth of Athens. But, uh, you know, if they really want to hit home on this, is that not the strategy that should be taken? That's a good question. <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that. Uh, however, I would use as the example uh, across this country the work that it was taken over guns, uh, youth, uh, walking out of school, protesting, uh, ac having active voices in their schools, in their cities, at their state level of government, in Washington. And, uh, you know, one of the discouraging things about it, while I applaud their actions, how do we push that forward to action at those elected levels where they start putting together policy and law that supports uh, doing the right thing. And, I, mean, uh, I mean, a general strike historically can be a very powerful uh, oh, organizing tool if enough people participate in it. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, um, it, and at some moment you, you're trying to at what level of disruption uh, does it take for people to listen and say we have to do something about this because the the citizens are angry enough that uh, action needs to be taken. And we all need to work together because it's obvious these young people care about it and they want to do the right thing. How do we convince a lot yeah. of those higher level electeds that now's the time? Well, and one of, uh, one of Greta Thunberg's responses to people who said this kid ought to be in school was, well, uh, if you agree that climate change is this urgent and you want me to be in school, you should, you should walk out of your job. You should strike from your employment. <laughs> no, no. Well, that, that level of... It's, it's a great uh, comeback. <laughs> yeah. That level of, of engagement certainly would change uh, the discussion. Um, and But it would also... It's discouraging to know that we how long we've been working on this. And you and I were both in Paris. Uh, you know, the facts are out there. The science is out there. The commitment was out there from the local government level all the way to heads of state. And then we turn around and get some new individuals in there that all of a sudden say, we're out. Uh, this isn't that big of a deal. We right. need to go back and, you know, look at uh, the last hundred years and see what brought us our success and say, that's what we need to bank on. That's not where the world's going. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting to watch nations and local leaders from across this country make the, the commitment. We're, you know, trying to make commitment, uh, you know, here in Des Moines on actions that we take in our, our city buildings and try to lead by example and make them more energy efficient, uh, beginning to uh, switch from not only hybrids, but even looking at electrical vehicles at, in, in our city operations and 
getting the pricing and sometimes you know it's hard to, for some when you're only look at economic numbers in short term to make a case that all electric which at the moment seems to be a little more expensive to mm-hmm. do that but we need to convince uh local electeds across this state, across this country, that this is the commitment that we need to make, and those are the kinds of jobs uh, that will create a better tomorrow. One more question, just moving, uh, we got to head to a break here shortly, but again, moving beyond local politics to national politics, we have this intense political <laughs> campaign for president right now in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, a few other places, and it's... Um, it's a, it's a great opportunity to let candidates know how important climate is to the voters. And, and the recent poll that came out showed, it showed that. The two top uh, concerns that voters want to see candidates talking more about were health care and climate change. And they were statistically tied. And they were way ahead of other concerns. My impression is that politicians, generally speaking, like to look at polls and craft their message around that. Is that an indication that we may begin to see more candidates do what Governor Inslee has done and prioritize climate as the top priority? Good question. Don't know. But I think what's going to take is Iowans, uh, whether they're rural, whether they're suburban, whether they're urban, every place that these candidates go, those questions, and especially about uh, climate and doing the right thing and what the economy looks like moving forward with the climate in mind, I want to hear what those those candidates have to say about it. And they won't just look to the mayor of the city of Des Moines or Ed Fallon uh, about what we think, because I think a lot of people know where we are in the issue. <laughs> but I think we need to have Iowans like Jeff and other people all around this state. When these candidates get out there, put that question to them. Great. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Folks, we're talking with the uh, mayor of Des Moines, Frank County. Going to take a short break here, and when we come back, we'll be talking with Dr. Maureen McHugh of Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility about the increased efforts to abolish nuclear weapons. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here broadcasting from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines. Des Moines, a.k.a. the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. And uh, fortunately, uh, having dodged the uh, flood bullets that uh, many parts of the upper Midwest have experienced, uh, we are still able to uh, function mostly normal here. I want to take a second to thank some of the local business partners that make this program possible. Thanks to Community CPA and Associates. They're located uh, with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is tax season, folks, so give Yingsa, the founder and director of Community CPA, a shout today. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant. That's H-O-Q Hawk Restaurant on East 5th and Walnut in the East Village of Des Moines, where 90% of the food served, 90%, comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Thanks also to Sargent's Garage, located on 6th and College in Des Moines, Four generations of my beaters have gone to sergeants, so they always come away with a fair diagnosis and a decent price. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Get all your insurance needs covered under one banner. No appointment needed. Stop by. That's Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand. All right, so, hey, welcome back to the conversation. We're shifting gears here a little bit, Uh, moving basically from one existential crisis to another. We have seen um, an increase in the level of bellicose dialogue across the globe. Uh, We have seen some of that from our own president, who uh, also pulled out of the INF Treaty with Russia, and uh, who is also dialoguing extensively with the dictator of North Korea, possibly the least popular leader of any nation in the globe, although President Trump might be giving him a run for his money. and now we've got this increased set of tensions between Pakistan and India. Uh, and, you know, it just uh, it all points to a problem when it comes to 
concerns about nuclear weapons. And to talk about that with us is Dr. Maureen McHugh with Physicians for Social Responsibility. Maureen, welcome to the program. Hi, Ed. Thanks so much for having me. And I appreciate um, being on right after um, Frank County talking about the other existential threat. In my mind, I see them as two sides of the same coin. Um, A lot of the same sorts of uh, concerns have to do with how we currently have enjoyed a planet and an um, atmosphere and a climate that's just right. And if we go to continue with our emissions and make it too hot, it um, will not allow for continued existence of civilization. And similarly, if we decide, oh, it's okay to use our nuclear arsenal, we will go to too cold, in which case we cannot Well, too cold, too cold and worse. I mean, the, 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 full, the full impact of what might happen in the case of a, of a significant nuclear exchange is, is unthinkable. It's just, it's unimaginable. And, uh, you know, it is interesting to me that that concern has kind of drifted to the back burner over the years as we focused on a lot of other things. And even now, as we're realizing the immediacy of the of the climate crisis, the ex- existential threat of, of, a, of a nuclear exchange is also becoming more prominent, um, thanks in part to the rhetoric of Donald Trump and, and other world leaders who uh, seem to seem to revel in being macho and uh, and bellicose. <laughs> so, really, you know, and the thing about um, a nuclear exchange is that we wouldn't have to use our arsenal of over fifteen thousand weapons, which is, as you say, unthinkable. Even in small numbers, the kind that you know could be lobbed between India and Pakistan, the numbers that could be lobbed in the Middle East, or that might involve you know something between uh, China and uh, Korea, or, or, or whatever within the the given only nine countries, it would take a relatively small number, and this is what the public has forgotten. People knew this at one time, that the danger was very real because these are unique kinds of doomsday weapons. We knew this back in the 80s. And again, I I mean, my analysis is partially other other concerns that were of immediate, you know, impact on people rose to the surface. But also um, we had the falling of the Berlin Wall. Uh, We had the crumbling of the Cold War and the, the improved relations for a time between the U.S. and the and what was then the USSR, and we had the nuclear test ban, and some treaties were signed. So there was some sense that we made progress, but even with all that progress, we still have this incredible arsenal that is destructive beyond imagination. How do we begin to move toward toward some sanity in this whole whole scenario? Well, we have to, have to think of it in a series of steps, and... Um, while it's absolutely clear the U.S. is in no way, shape, or form ready to um, pursue a, a treaty uh, to, to eliminate their arsenal, um, we could start talking about some of the most immediate threats, like renouncing the option of using nuclear weapons first. This is part of the bellicosity that you refer to, that the Trump administration feels that perhaps he could uh, use a nuclear weapon if he felt like it. I mean, he talks like a crazy man sometimes, but without any understanding of the lethality of these weapons at his fingertips. So let's renounce the option, now, have the I, have, option of using nuclear weapons first. Whoever uses them first, it's a done deal. Now, have, I, have other presidents also uh, indicated that they would be willing to use nuclear weapons first? In general, it's been an understanding that we didn't have a first strike option. And certainly we understood that a first strike, a a nuclear option, wasn't reasonable in response to conventional attacks of any other sort. But now, the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review put out by this president says um, that he could, if he chose... Um, to respond to any significant non-nuclear strategic attack, um, so which not, so in not some Re- ways could even be a cyber attack. Sure. So not Reagan, not Clinton, not the two Bushes, not Obama, none of those presidents 
had had indicated that they were willing to strike first. No, 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 they did not. So, this this is, is, so yeah, and, and, and Trump has said that. That should concern people. Yes, yes. The other thing, the, the correlate to that is the fact that at this point in time, um, we feel that or there is an unchecked authority of our president to launch a nuclear attack. Um, whether uh, under any circumstances, it shouldn't be one person who can just decide um, to launch a nuclear attack. There have got to be, be some safeguards. There, there have got to be others involved in this chain of command if we're talking about something that literally could end life as we know it. No single finger on that. And we, uh, we, have a, we, and we have a president who um, some very respected and not partisan uh, professionals in the field of psychiatry have analyzed as unstable. I mean, I know there are his followers, of course, and he himself are going to argue that point, but there's been some, some really <laughs> solid uh, analysis that suggests that he's not a stable person. Yeah, I, so I, yeah. Have, a, have a questionable... I mean, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, to have that kind of power held by any one person on this planet is exceedingly frightening. Um, it, you know, the sanity of anyone who would say, okay, we will launch the end of the world has got to be questioned. Um, and so it, it has to be something a, a little more restrictive. Not only, you know, do we not take a first strike approach, but we do not let one person. Right. So uh, you, you said small, small steps. Uh, first of all, backing away from a first strike mentality, um, changing the situation where one person is in charge of, of launching a nuclear weapon, the president in our case. And I presume that might be the case in other countries as well. Yes, I mean, yeah. of, of course, you know, we are talking about that being a likelihood in, in any of the nine nuclear-armed states. So how do you get the other countries to agree to that? What, what, is that, what does that process look like? Well, in, in the first place, there should be leadership. Um, and we have, you know, the most powerful military. We are one of the wealthiest nations. We have always been a leader. In, in many respects, let's take back that uh, leadership, and um, at least we take the high road. And I think that um, history has shown that, that why would anybody else take a suicidal position? Um, why would they want to um, strike when they know that we have, you know, far more capability to strike back? Um, that, that it isn't an unequal sum game. We are the leaders in the possibility of, of destroying the world, and we are hopefully have some kind of moral fiber that says we can lead in the right direction. So, what, what other steps would uh, what, what other steps would we need to take as we advance down the road toward nuclear sanity? Well, right now, um, as you probably know, um, and maybe many people do not realize that, we have a lot of our arsenal um, set to go off automatically. So they're on what's, what a lot of people refer to as a um, hair trigger alert. Right. They're, they're targeted and they're ready to go at, um, at any instigation. And that in and of itself is very frightening because any kind of mistake in the um, computer system, any kind of hacker, etc., um, could intentionally or um, unintentionally launch some of these weapons that are on hair trigger alert. So after we say no first strike, after we say no one person with their finger on the button, we say let's get them off hair trigger alert. Let's gradually ramp down the threat okay. that's embedded in this whole arsenal. And then I presume the next step would be to begin to decommission weapons? Well, um, we do routinely decommission some of the older weaponry. Um, as, as you probably do know, we did at one time have an even larger um, arsenal. But um, we continue to replace them. We continue to enhance them. We continue to work uh, and spend 
so much money as if we really could use them. We cannot use them. So we might just um, stop enhancing them. We might just stop increasing the numbers. I mean, how many do we need to destroy the world? Not very many. We have thousands of them. We can destroy the world over and over many times. So we need to just stop enhancing, stop. It's a hard reality for people to hear, but uh, again... It's important that people know what we're dealing with, and I, and I think you've got a tough job there of, of being one of those people who are uh, unafraid and uh, and equipped intellectually to deliver that message. That's a that's a tough challenge. It's a tough, and again, it's a tough message for us to hear. It it is, but you know, we have to start thinking about ourselves as members of the entire planet and as responsible human beings with some kind of, like I said, a moral compass. We're worried about climate change. We're worried about health care. We're worried about our water. We're worried about our food. These things take money. They take time. Why are we wasting money on expanding and upgrading a doomsday machine, something to bring an end to all of this? If we do indeed truly care about our future, if we care about our children, if we care about our health, we need to start prioritizing those things. And to do that, we take funds away from supporting something that can never be used, that should well, never have been developed. Yeah, and really and good, and good point, too, is we, uh, in, in, in the process of accomplishing that, we free up uh, revenue funds for a lot of other purposes that are um, peaceful and helpful, better health care. Yeah. Uh, yeah. More, you know, support for emerging fossil fuel alternatives, for example, uh, infrastructure. You name it. There's so many, so many needs out there. Education, but the, um, uh, yeah, I don't it, even know. The what, list is so long, and uh, do we have, do. We waste absolutely billions of dollars on supporting the nuclear arsenal. So he, and. While it's not a big portion of our military overall, it's a significant chunk of change, as they'd say. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, President Obama, I can't remember the exact language he used, but he talked about... Prague. Uh, uh, what's that? In Prague, yes. Well, he, ta- he talked sorry. about abolishing nuclear weapons. Did he not? Yes, he did. And that was what he got his um, you know, Nobel... Uh, Peace Prize for so uh, let's uh, let's give yeah. him a grade. How, what what did how did how um, I mean obviously that's not something you can co- accomplish on your own, even if you're the president of the United States. But in terms of effort, how well did he do at trying to achieve that goal? Well, I I give him high grades for even bringing it up, since it, it hadn't been addressed in any significant way, even in some ways one one might say since Reagan uh, made real efforts. Um, but then, uh, you know, he did allow for money to be earmarked for uh, enhancement and enlargement. So, yeah, see, that, that's what I don't get. That's what I don't get. How can you say we want to move toward abolishing nuclear weapons and then, as president, still approve money for enhancing the <laughs> the capacity to? To, to there, deliver. There, I don't get there that. were many of those kinds of I, I would I would have to say some kind of missteps um, or um, it tells you just how powerful the invisible forces are within our government that continue to uh, push forward with or without um, agreement at least intellectually and um, spiritually. Of, of the people who are at the head of uh, the game here. Right. Um, I think, you know, there were a lot of missteps, a lot of miscommunications, or um, just so many other things coming up that I think he was probably overwhelmed by certain forces. And I don't even think it's all military forces, per yeah. se. Yeah. Um, but, well, but those who profit from the continued investment in these machines. As you know, we have uh, forces across every state um, that rely on some of this uh, money from the military. So so we've got a, an entire uh, Congress that's in the pocket of the people developing the weapons. Um, and so it's, it's more complex than just one person. So you, uh, again, I know that Getting finding enough oxygen in the room to have this conversation is tough, but having it is critically important. I know you've got some training. I, think, I believe they're called trainings coming up, nuclear abolition trainings coming up. Tell yeah, us, a, tell us about those. 
Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, we are trying to do some advocacy training. Obviously, to do something, to do something effective, people have to know what's at risk. And then they have to know who are the decision makers, and they have to be able to message things in such a way that it makes an impact on, you know, the listener. And right now, with elections coming up, I think is an absolute ideal time to try to get the ear of our politicians because everybody's yeah. looking around, you know, what are the issues that people are concerned about? And, so that, and, I know, and I know there may be trainings around the country, but I know you've got one in Iowa City and one in Des Moines. Yes. Yeah, we are doing them. At the end of the month, we have um, our national uh, uh, nuclear expert, um, Martin Fleck, coming from Washington to Iowa City on the 30th, and then um, we're going on over to Des Moines on the 31st um, just to talk to people about, get the background, what is going on, what, is, what are some of the evidence, of, you know, of rising risks on the nuclear front, what can we do, how can we pitch it, to whom right. do we need to start talking, you know, who influences um, our leaders, how do we influence our leaders, so we'll be doing right. that. Well, on both days, and we are doing it in association also with, I think, a very inspirational exhibit that we've put up at Drake University in the Fine Arts Center called, called Everything You Treasure. It's what are, what are we exchanging for nuclear weaponry? What, what, is, hmm. what are the things we're affecting in our lives if, if we support this nuclear arsenal, this nuclear arms race? And so our... Um, Exhibit is up all month. We also have some books and films on sh exhibit at the Drake Library so that when we do do the training on Sunday, the 31st, with Martin from Washington, people are also invited at the end of the day to see the last day of the exhibit um, and have a, okay. you know, more conversation about what does this all mean. We can only accomplish so much. Maureen, in the last in the last two minutes we have left here, I want to ask, uh, you know, what some folks uh, who don't agree with you will say: even if the world abolishes all nuclear weapons, how, in that case, how do we protect ourselves from being held hostage to one crazy that that figures out how to make one and then threaten everybody? And if we don't have if we don't have nuclear weapons, how do we guard against that possibility? I don't know if you can answer that in one minute or not, but that's the question that I hear come up well, once in a while. I, I always I always say, a, it's a lot harder to make one of these things in some ways um, than people realize. But b, one is not going to destroy the world, and for us to hold on to fifteen hundred, worrying 15, about some fifteen thousand, isn't it? One is it fifteen thousand? Fifteen hundred. I'm sorry, it's 15,000 yeah. in the world, right, I'm right. sorry. Yeah. Uh, we, we have, between us and Russia, we have 90%, and yeah. then there's a small number. Right. A small number that works for deterrence for all, all seven other nuclear-armed nations. Yeah. I mean, we have an absurd number. And so it, there, the calculus is, it just doesn't make any sense to say we need um, this kind of deadly firepower because one person might make one. Um, you know, it's kind of... Yeah. Maureen, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We've got to wrap up the program. Folks, if you're listening okay. to our... Uh, Thanks for, for letting me talk about it. And really, I do hope people will join us. Yeah, we Maureen, we'll, we'll, make sure we, we'll, we'll make sure we put some of the information out about that. I've got to wrap up the show. Uh, again, we've okay. been talking with All Maureen right. McHugh. She's uh, with Physicians for Social Responsibility. There'll be more conversation for folks listening on our community-owned stations. Uh, in the meantime, thanks to Lorena at 1260 AM for being our host station. This is Ed Fallon. Back to the Fallon Farm. Probably like New Hampshire and maybe South Carolina, we have been overrun with a new, new, a new invasive species known as presidential candidates. Uh, they really are everywhere. This past weekend, St. Patrick's Day weekend, was intense. Uh, it was hard to find time to 
carve out a bit of uh, R&R to appreciate the uh, the Irishness in me. Uh, there's so many candidates, so many candidates here, and so much going on. And we have um, there's a lot of folks around the state who are asking about climate change. And interestingly, uh, a recent Des Moines Register poll, Des Moines Register and CNN poll, uh, found that uh, health care and climate change were the top two concerns that Democratic caucus goers in Iowa want to see candidates spend more time with. 81% said they want to see more discussion about health care and 80% more discussion about climate change. The next nearest uh, a concern that people wanted to see addressed was income inequality at 67%, followed by immigration at 57%. Now, those things are important. They're critical issues. But I was pleased to see that climate change, which again is not an issue but a crisis, has elevated so high in terms of the priorities that uh, caucus goers here want to see discussed. And yet despite that, we see uh, only one candidate so far has prioritized climate change. And again, to be really clear, I'm not endorsing anybody. I'm not supporting anybody at this point. My, my hope is to continue to encourage the candidates to discuss climate as their top priority. So um, Governor Inslee, who is the one candidate who's done that, uh, mentioned this over the weekend. He said, we have exactly one chance left to defeat climate change, and that's during the next administration. And when you have one chance at survival, we ought to take it. Inslee went on to say that, um, he was, this was in response to a question from The Guardian. They asked if the election of another Democrat would mean the U.S. would miss its, quote, one chance to fight climate change. He said, if it's not job number one, it won't get done. And I'm the only candidate that's saying that right now. All right, so I'm really glad he is. And I hope he's not the only one because who knows who's going to get to be the next president. But I do know this. You have limited, limited political capital as president. You can't accomplish everything, whether you're president or governor or U.S. senator or a member of, a Congress, of Congress or state legislature. You've got limited political capital and limited time. And a great example of this is the Affordable Care Act. That debate ate up so much political capital and time that um, some analysts say, and I think they're right, that it basically sucked up all the oxygen and there was no room or energy left to deal with another big challenge like climate change. Well, and that's why it's really important for candidates to distinguish the crisis of climate as, a, as, as their top, not a top priority, but their top priority. The first thing they're going to work on when they get elected, if they get elected. So how are the other candidates stacking up? Well, over the weekend, we got some more information about that. Uh, John Delaney was in Decorah, and uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth Huffman uh, talked to him. She says that uh, Delaney dismissed the Green New Deal out of hand when it was brought up uh, in a question. He uh, said he wants to invest in research for machines to pull carbon out of the air. This is a, a form of geoengineering. Now, uh, I think part of Delaney's uh, focus is that he, he's more interested in, in the carbon tax than the Green New Deal. And for a while... The carbon tax seemed like a good idea. I think what people are saying now is that with climate at a critical point, we can't take incremental steps anymore. And the carbon tax is an incremental, and it's an incremental and market-based uh, step. We need to go beyond those kinds of approaches. And people are, I guess, are seeing that we need a, a comprehensive strategy. And that's why there's so much excitement around the Green New Deal. Again, it may not be the only deal, but it's the one deal on the table that does approach climate from a comprehensive point of view. So um, Ruth's uh, conversation with Delaney also, uh, she also reports that when she brought up regenerative agriculture, that um, he was completely dismissive. Uh, she was pointing out that regenerative agriculture can also pull carbon out of the air. He was dismissive of that. That's too bad. Um, Anyway, uh, <laughs> the experience of uh, Mark Kuhn in, uh, when, uh, in Charles City, uh, when Delaney came there over the weekend, um, again, 
Mark's uh, analysis was um, was uh, you know, kind of just just looking at exactly what Delaney was saying. It was uh, four. There were four parts to his climate proposal: supporting the carbon tax, um, two tax credits for renewable energy, uh, three re-entering the Paris Climate Accord, and four uh, thirty billion dollars per year to the Energy Department for new technology to reduce fossil fuels. So I, I don't know quite where um, Delaney's idea about um, machines to pull carbon out of the air comes in, but. <laughs> I don't know. That kind of reminded me of Andrew Yang's approach to dealing with climate change, which uh, involved, in part, involved uh, packing dirt around glaciers to slow the melting. I'm not sure that's a great idea. All right, so in terms of other candidates, Amy Klobuchar was here as well. And uh, Mike Wilcox met with her in Davenport, where she talked about the climate crisis in her opening speech. That was good. Um, he had asked her, Mike had asked her about where she stands on the Green New Deal, and she is a co-sponsor. Mike thanked her for discussing climate in her talk. Um, she also commented on immigration, infrastructure, health care, uh, pharmaceutical drugs. She also talked about antitrust uh, laws and uh, monopolies. Um, so, uh, that, that, you know, that, that's good. Again, Prioritize it. Make it your top priority. So good feedback. My own, um, there were several of us here in Des Moines and Indianola who went to see Cory Booker. Again, he gave maybe an hour-long talk, uh, never a mention of climate. And uh, we found that unfortunate and surprising. He has talked about it before. Uh, but he was approached um, by several people to tell us why he hasn't made it his top priority, given the fact that he recognizes that it's a crisis, that it's an existential threat. And I, um, I you know, I, I, I didn't have a good response, in my opinion. But he was also approached, uh, Christine Nobis, she thanked him for actually mentioning uh, Native communities in his speech, but pushed him to do more to recognize the importance, for example, of, um, of, uh, having more Native leadership in the Green New Deal, and also the concern that in the Green New Deal, it is, uh, it is suggested that policymakers consult with Native communities before taking any kind of major action. And, and, that, and that language is seen as, a, as somewhat dismissive and condescending. You know, consultation doesn't really go very far. Here in Iowa, we have a problem with consultation when it comes, for example, to hog confinements. If, uh, if a local government says it doesn't really want a proliferation of confinements in a certain part of its county, and maybe it does that because 90% of its constituents don't want it, that doesn't matter. That, um, quote, consultation means nothing to the DNR, who have rules that are basically stacked against against public opinion and in favor of the mega hog industry. So yeah, consultation, we can see historically why that doesn't, why that doesn't mean a lot. And so I, I, I commend our Native allies for pushing hard to change that from consultation to consent. That's good. And so uh, pushing the presidential candidates to get that and to uh, focus more on indigenous communities and, and, and why and, and the, the many ways in which they've been wronged and, the, um, and, and what we need to do to, to kind of step aside and let, let our native leaders um, you know, provide some of the direction, provide some of the leadership. Uh, you know, that you, we, look, we look at the, um, the challenges facing our world and a lot of them deal with how we treat the planet and life itself. And if you look at the... Um, the, the uh, historical perspective of Native communities, of indigenous peoples, well, they got it, they got it going right on that. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, if we, if we really want to move beyond this, um, this, this, this inst unstable, uh, uh, you know, dance of uh, destruction we're currently engaged in, we need to let that leadership have its voice to rise to the surface, and I'm and I'm glad to see that that's happening, and I'm glad to see that 
those issues, those the, that, that perspective is being raised at all these different forums where candidates are coming to Iowa and other states. And, I, and again, I hope that that continues. And I hope we see candidates um, understand that. And again, I, I tie that in with climate change because uh, many of the, the, the front line of the front line that's advancing the problem of climate change right now are these pipelines, gas, oil, and a lot of those are directly impacting the Native communities. So, yeah, their voice is needed, and not just for consultation, but uh, for consent. This is Ed Fallon, folks. Thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum.